This was the best men's breakfast that I have ever been to. You know why this was the best men's breakfast? There was no chopped up fruit. <laughs> huh? Right? I mean, it did slip a little into that whole blueberry cobbler thing, but there was sugar and it was okay. It's like, who comes to a men's breakfast to eat chopped up watermelon? So I already told the ladies in the kitchen, I said, boy, you did it this time. You did it. Uh, I also get to come up after the biscuits and gravy, huh? So how are we feeling? A little, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. All right, so stand up. Come on, just stand them up. Just you know, a little stretch. Oh. For sure, yeah, a little shoulder, shoulder massage if you need it. Just whatever it takes. <laughs> whatever it takes. All right. Yeah, that's rough, huh? But I think it'll hold us until we get something to eat. So we're in good shape. We are in good shape. Well, when Mark first contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to speak, I, would, I responded back to him immediately. I'd be delighted. Delighted for the opportunity to, to be with you men again and to uh, open the Word of God with you and to speak to you with, from my heart uh, the things uh, that the Lord has placed there. So I've uh, entitled the, the message for this morning, uh, Working for the Weekend. Working for the Weekend. Work is something we're all very much acquainted with. It has occupied or is occupying or will occupy the significant uh, percentage of our waking hours. So it's something that we are very, very familiar with. But I thought as we get started, uh, we could have a little bit of fun together. And, and so um, I went to this website and, and I gathered together some responses that people have put down on job applications. You know, when you fill out a job application, at least the last time I looked for a job, you actually had to do it in with a pen on a piece of paper. I, I suspect it's all done on computers, and man, I would be lost. You're looking at a guy who types with two fingers. So, but anyway, here's some, here's some, uh, here's some things for you. So under the heading of uh, reasons for leaving the last job, you know, typical application question, reasons for leaving the last job. Uh, responsibility makes me nervous. <laughs> responsibility makes me nervous. Or another one, uh, they insisted that all employees get to work by 8.45 every morning. Couldn't work under those conditions. So it's probably millennial um, with that. Uh, how about this one? Uh, was met with a string of broken promises and lies, as well as cockroaches. <laughs> Or um, how about this one? The company made me a scapegoat, just like my three previous employers. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Or uh, under the special requests and job objectives section. Uh, please call me after 5.30 because I'm self-employed and my employer does not know that I'm looking for another job. <laughs> Or this one, um, my goal is to be a meteorologist, but since I have no training in meteorology, I suppose I should try stock brokerage. <laughs> uh, 
How about this one? I procrastinate, especially when the task is unpleasant. <laughs> Physical disabilities, uh, minor allergies to house cats and Mongolian sheep. <laughs> Personal interests, uh, donating blood, 14 gallons so far. <laughs> And then uh, there are those small typos that can change the meanings, right? How about this one? Education, college, August 1880 to May 1984. <laughs> Work experience, dealing with customer conflicts that arouse. <laughs> uh, develop and recommend an annual operating expense fudget. <laughs> I'm a rabid typist. <laughs> this is my favorite. Instrumental in ruining entire operation for Midwest chain. <laughs> oh, goodness. A lot of fun. Well, brothers, for much of the history of the United States, we have been one of the most economically productive economies in the history of the world. Without a doubt, without a doubt. We are blessed as a nation with immense natural resources. There's probably no other landmass, no other country certainly, that has the kind of natural resources that are available here in the United States of America. From, from the river systems, you know, to the mineral rights, to the incredible grazing, uh, millions and millions of acres, to the climate, I mean, just from stem to stern, access to oceans, many, many deep water ports. We are blessed. We are incredibly blessed providentially of God to be in this country with the kind of resources that have been and are available to us. But aside from all of that, aside from all of that, I think the, the prosperity that we have enjoyed as a people and as a nation can be attributed to what was once known as the Puritan work ethic. The Puritan work ethic. And what was that Puritan work ethic? Well, simply put, it was this. Work hard, work honestly. Work hard and work honestly. And that, that focus, that orientation towards work produced incredible wealth that this nation has been able to accumulate over its rough 300-year history. This Puritan work ethic grew out of theology. It grew out of a Calvinistic understanding, really, of work as a divine calling of God. Work was understood by those, those early Puritans to be an evidence to be seen as an evidence of saving grace and not the means by which one achieved saving grace. And that makes all the difference in the world. For the Puritans, you evidence to others your understanding of the grace of God in your life and His call upon you by giving you to vocation, giving yourself to your vocation. So it was theologically driven underneath all of this. The Puritans regularly stressed the importance of work. It was a topic that was frequently 
dealt with in Puritan preaching and writing and, and pastoral visiting and so forth. They cared about these things. But all of their hard work, even though theologically driven, uh, brought about, uh, as a result, uh, an, an abundant material prosperity. They didn't work to get wealthy, but they got wealthy because they worked. And they worked hard. And, and with the, the wealth that, that accumulated as a result of that hard work, that was theologically motivated, there was some unintended and uninvited consequences. In fact, by the year 1702, so we're just, a, you know, a little less than 100 years into the American experiment, as it were, and the Boston pastor, Cotton Mather, he lamented what he saw around him in really just three generations. And he wrote this, he said, quote, religion, and when, in, in those days, when they spoke about religion, for them there was only one religion, it was the Christian religion. Okay. So he writes, religion, we meant Christianity, religion gave birth to prosperity, and the daughter destroyed the mother. Let me read that to you again. Religion gave birth to prosperity, and the daughter destroyed the mother. In other words, the more prosperous they became as a, as a people, the less they sensed their need for Christ. And that's a true phenomenon. That's a true phenomenon. Right? It's, it's impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom, Jesus said. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I remember many, many, many years ago, I was... Uh, a young man and, and part of this uh, small Baptist church. And in those days, we did weekly visitation. We would go out door knocking. Uh, they used to call it soul winning. And so as we would be going, it was uh, often just me and the pastor. It was a small church. But I remember him telling me, and again, I was in my 20s at the time. And he said, David, I have never led anyone to Christ who had a boat in their driveway. It was just his observation. And that was that when they had achieved the level of material prosperity that enabled them and, you know, to have a boat, as it were, they just had no time or interest in Christ. The daughter had consumed the mother. From the year 1900 to the present, so we're talking, you know, what, 100, a little less than 120 years, the average work week for non-farm, so the average non-farm work week in America has declined from 53 hours to 35. Okay? Now, there's things going on in our economy. I get it. People have to have two jobs. and So, so there's factors here. But, but notice what has happened. We have more and more and more leisure time than at any time in our history. But in addition to that, the, the amount of hours wasted while at work has, has soared to close to 20%, nearly one day in five. So people are working a, a third less in the last hundred years and, and wasting 
considerably more amount of the time that they are on the job. In survey after survey, employees admit to spending hours on the internet while at work. They check their social networking sites, they're downloading music, they're reading online news, they're checking eBay, on and on it goes. For many people, many people, work is the unpleasant time between the weekends. Work is that, is that unpleasant time that occupies, you know, the, the gap between the weekends. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 23 and 24, he said, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Okay, I want to ask and answer three significant questions regarding the topic of work. I'm going to ask and answer three significant questions regarding the topic of work so that we might truly serve Christ in this area of our lives. As we say when we begin, right? It, it occupies a tremendous amount of our waking hours. There was an old guy who said one time that you spend your life, the majority of your life, either on your feet or in your bed. So don't chintz out on your mattress or your boots. We spend a lot of time at work. And how we work matters to God. It, it actually demonstrates our theology. Puts it on display. So, first question. First question, why work? Why work? In his book, A Proverbs-Driven Life, the author, Anthony Salvagayo, you don't know. So all I have to do is say it. Salvagayo. Good book, by the way. But he defines work this way, and I think this is good. He says, work is any set of tasks to be performed in pursuit of a particular goal. Any set of tasks to be performed in pursuit of our particular goal, that is work. And it's important that, that we stop and think about it in that way because what he has done is he has separated money out of the equation. He has separated money out of the equation. And by doing so, he enables us to see that work is not simply cash in exchange for labor. Which is often, I think, how we view it. He rightly observes the, the fact that in many cases, a worker does not get paid. For example, artists... Artists work in hope of getting paid. College students pay others to let them work. At-home moms 
they work for rewards that are not financial. So breaking the linkage that, that so easily can form in our mind between this exchange of labor for cash and that's what work is all about. If that's the linkage, then the solution is how do I get the most cash with the least amount of labor, right? And, and as Christians, we, 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 can't do, we can't think that way. If we, if we think that way, we begin to, we begin to operate that way, and, and then we begin to, to work like pagans. So I'm back to the question, why work? Why work? And the answer to the question is, it's the calling of God. It is the calling of God. So if you have a personal copy of the Word of God here, or sitting next to somebody who does, kind of saddle up a little closer, your brothers can handle it. Open up to the first chapter of Genesis. I just want to develop this thought a little bit that it's the calling of God. Why work? Because it's God's call on us. In the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what is historically been known as the dominion mandate. The dominion mandate. In other words, that, that God created man, male and female, in his image with a purpose. And the purpose was to rule the creation, to subdue the creation. These, these, these terms here, to, to uh, rule over and to subdue and so forth, these are, these are strong, strong words, strong Hebrew words. They imply the exertion of effort. Even at times they convey the sense of almost violence. That, that kind of strength in these words. This, this subduing and ruling over the creation is a, is a manly task that cry, requires the exertion of considerable effort, mental, physical, moving the earth around, you know, cutting down trees, digging holes, rearranging the, the directions of waterways. I mean, all of, all of it is implicit in, in this dominion mandate. God created us to bear His image, to bear His image, to be His image bearers. And in the bearing of His image, one of the ways we do that is by emulating Him who works. Six days God created the 
the, the universe, right? I mean, he called it into existence, ex nihilo, from nothing. And he arranged and he ordered and he, he drew it all into its, its tremendous um, uh, coherence that, that just, you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's just amazing everywhere you look. And then he assigned it to us. And he said, take over. Manage it. Steward it. Change it. Bring out, draw out its, its latent fruitfulness. Subdue the earth and rule over it. Specifically in chapter 2, it's, it's illustrated for us in, uh, in verse 15, where chapter 2 is an expansion of the, the events of the sixth day. And verse 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to keep it and cultivate it. So specifically for Adam, the, the idea of ruling and subduing and so forth was in the, in the context of this, this amazing garden of God. And notice there, he is to cultivate it and he is to keep it. it does, he doesn't own it. He is the steward of it, though. And, and as the steward, as the manager, he has considerable license as to how he will manage it how we will cultivate it, how we will keep it, and so forth. But this was given to him. And notice this, beyond that, that, that this is before the fall. This is before the fall. We need to break, uh, I think we'd probably go around the room, and I don't know that anybody would vocally say that you know, work is a result of, of sin. <coughs> but there's still a, a certain underlying sense in which I think we can be drawn into that idea. The, the, the work is the product of sin, and it is not the product of sin. What is the product of sin, as we find in chapter 3, and verses 18 and 19, is that that mandate remains in place after the fall, but the, but the ability to fulfill it has now been significantly um, diminished, has been made much more difficult. Right? Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you'll eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So that which was beautiful and yielded itself willingly to man now fights us. And that's our experience, isn't it? That's our experience. I mean, even if you've got a great job, and, and some of you in here, you'd probably say, man, I, I am doing what I love. I've got a great job. And I would say, praise the Lord. And you know, i got a great job. I love doing what I do. But there are days. There are days. When it's fighting you every, every step of the way, isn't it? If you're working hard, and it's just, man, it seems like all I get here is thorns and thistles, either figuratively or literally. So we, we understand it. Okay, but notice God didn't repeal the dominion mandate. The consequence of the fall was not the repeal of the dominion mandate. It was 
the reality that that mandate remains in place with us, it's just much more difficult now. Much more difficult. Boy, how I long for the return of Christ, huh? When he makes all things right, including this. But brothers, when we work, when we work as God intends us to work, we glorify him. We echo his creativity. We echo his productivity. It is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Work is godlike. And, and we are godlike when we work. It's essential to the Omaga Day, to, to the image of God. Just as a side here. Because of this theological reality, to either refuse to work or to deny someone the opportunity to work is to deny them the expression or, or part of the expression of their humanity. It's a, it's a dehumanizing thing to deny someone the opportunity to work. It's a dehumanizing thing to refuse the opportunity to work. Now, this way of thinking is, is not merely helpful, but it's essential for us to understand that there is spiritual significance in every act of work. It is a spiritual activity to work. And we work as Christian men. We work as one in whom is the spirit of the living God. When we forget or misunderstand this theological foundation for work, we risk becoming resentful, whiny, shirking, unappreciative, lazy, in a word, what the Bible calls the sluggard. The sluggard. And that takes me to my second question. Turn over to the right in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 6. And my second question for you is this. What can a bug teach me? Okay. Proverbs chapter 6 and verses 6 through 11. And the question, the second question. Significant question for us this morning is, what can a bug teach me? What can a bug teach me? Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? 
a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a traveler and your needs like an armed man. This expression, your poverty will come in like a traveler, is, is the idea that, that the poverty seems to be a long way away. But it will show up on your doorstep. It'll show up on your doorstep. I think the NSB translates it a vagabond. See out here, it shows up on your doorstep. So what can a bug teach me? Well, let's just think about the context of this proverb. It's really amazing. Humanity. We are the pinnacle of the creation of God, aren't we? We are the pinnacle. Created at the end of the sixth day. Image bearers of God. The only image bearers of God in all of creation. And yet we are commanded to receive instruction from a mindless, soulless, tiny little insect. We were created to have dominion over the earth, and we need to learn a lesson from an ant on what it means to work. One day when Christ returns, we will rule over the new creation. But for now, we have to go to school and be tutored by a bug. So, what can a bug teach me? Well, first, go to the ant and observe her ways and be wise, it says, verse 6, right? Any of you have ant farms? Or as a kid had an ant farm? Or anybody look at ants other than to burn them with a magnifying glass? <laughs> All you sociopaths? <laughs> Ants display the most innate and natural desire to work industriously, don't they? It's really quite something fascinating to observe. An ant does not need to be persuaded. It doesn't need to be browbeaten. It doesn't need to be forced to go to work. An ant has no coach, no supervisor, no accountability partner. Ants don't need pep talks. They don't need Bible studies. They don't need motivational speakers. They don't need lessons on a biblical ethic of work. Ants work industriously because that is what they were created to do. And that is exactly the point that Solomon wants us to see. The ant was created to work industriously, and that's what the ant does. And so we, as the pinnacle of creation, need to go to school with the bug and to recognize that, that the ant doing what it was created to do is the lesson for us to take away. That we are to do what we were created to do. I mean, the answer is so amazing, right? I mean, even if we are so lazy that we fail to clean up after ourselves, they'll come along and they'll take care of that too. They're good workers. They're really good workers. And that's the first lesson from the bug. And then notice the contrast where we derive the second lesson. 
In contrast to the positive example of the ant, the proverb provides the negative example of the sluggard. The sluggard's nature is very, very clear. Look at verse 10 by the, by the pattern here. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Sleep, slumber, rest. This is the pattern of the sluggard. And it is in direct, you know, antithesis to the pattern of the ant. Now, we all need sleep. We all need sleep. So this is not about, you know, hey, there's virtue and like, I only get three hours of sleep, you know, and everybody else should. Bless you, man. If you can do that, I'll probably preach at your funeral. <laughs> so it's not about the, the need for sleep. For the sluggard, they don't get up when they wake up. They don't get up when they wake up. Instead, the sluggard stays in bed. They slumber, they daydream. This is their habit. This is what defines them. It's the picture of somebody who, who wakes up but does not get up. They press the snooze button. Then they drift in and out of dreamland. Beyond that, when they finally wake up, they still don't get up. Right? A little folding of the hands to rest. It's the idea they just lay in bed and fold their hands on their chest and they lie there resting and relaxing and, and sort of contemplating. And meanwhile, the day is slipping by. That's the picture that's being drawn for us here. A little sleep, a little slumber, that's sort of the dozing time. You know, a little folding of the hands to rest, that's the you know, sitting there uh, with your cell phone, smartphone, surfing the net, because, hey, I don't want to get up. Brothers, the refusal to embrace a diligent work ethic is sinful because it violates one of the primary calls that God has given us as Christians, which is to echo our Creator in our work. Okay? Laziness is a sin. The fact that we all struggle with it at some level or another doesn't diminish that reality. It is a sin for which Christ has died. For which Christ has died. It sort of puts it in the, in the realm of seriousness, doesn't it? When facing the reality of idleness in the church, the Apostle Paul, with a, with a good, solid grounding in, in Genesis, he writes the following in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. 2 Thess chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. In other words, this is something that was a regular part of the teaching of the Apostle Paul, beyond which he only spent a short amount of time in the Thessalonian, in the context of the Thessalonian church. Depending how you do the chronology, maybe as short as six weeks. So let's, let's say that, six weeks. 
So if you were to lead the people to Christ and to, and to start a church, you know, to enfold them into a local body of Christ, and you got six weeks to teach them theology, would you put work up there? We used to give you this order even when we were with you. And the, the idea is that this was not just a passing topic. This was something Paul was, was understood to be very serious. It was part of his instruction, even to basic, you know, basic Christianity. He says, he used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not take, does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special notice of the person, do not associate with him, so he'll be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In other words, Paul's not saying that a, that a failure to understand or, or live out a theology of work makes you, you know, an unbeliever. You still be a brother. But you're a brother that, that is in sin and needs to, be, needs to be brought out of that sin. And there's nothing like an empty belly to motivate people to work, huh? Proverbs talk about that. It urges the worker on. So, first question, why work? Answer, it glorifies God. It glorifies God because it's part of what it means to be in His image. We emulate Him. What can a bug teach me? Second question. What can a bug teach me? Simply this, work industriously, for it is the reason for which we were created. One of the reasons for which we were created. That takes us to our third question. Our third question. How do I balance work and rest? Okay, third question. How do I balance work and rest? Now there are, this is like a country road here. Okay, you go out on a country road, it's unpaved. There are a couple of ditches. There's a ditch on either side of the road. And there's no virtue in falling in one ditch or the other. Okay? You say, keep between the ditches. Right? Drive safely. Keep between the ditches. So there's a ditch on either side of the road and on the whole issue of work and rest. And, and you know, we don't have time for a whole series on work and rest, but, but let, me, let me just try to navigate a little bit between these ditches here. And I want to do that with some help from the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, so that's where we're going. We're back into the wisdom literature again. So why don't we uh, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We'll briefly look here at the first ditch. Okay, we'll call it the left-hand ditch, if you like. That's the futility of labor. That first ditch is the futility of labor. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. So I hated life, he says, for all the work which had been done, because the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. 
and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. This too is vanity. All right, so what is, what is Solomon saying? Solomon is, is, is making this observation that you work your entire life. You work hard your entire life and you build a business. You build a reputation. You, you build the work of your hands and then you die. And when you die, you leave everything you have built into the control of one who comes after you. And you don't know whether he's going to be wise or a fool. And you're not there to guide him. You have no control. No control. There's a Scottish proverb that goes like this. It says, the father buys, the son builds, the grandson sells, and his son begs. The father buys, the son builds, the grandson sells, and his son begs. Or shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. In other words, that those that come after you often squander what you have built. There is an inherent futility in labor. Why? Because the world is broken. It's twisted. It's bent. It doesn't all work out the way it ought to the way it will someday. You can't have heaven on earth. So I don't care what dream job you've got. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care what kind of reputation you've, you've built, what kind of a, amazing business you've constructed, wealth you've created for your heirs. The sad reality of it is, is in many, many cases, it's all going to get squandered. That's the sad reality. The only thing that goes beyond, goes beyond you is relationships, people. So the only, the only work of enduring value is to make disciples, right? To make disciples. In the context of children, children are missionaries you will send into the future to a time you will never be able to go to. So, is Solomon saying, oh, you know, then just why bother go to work, man? It's all going to burn. It's a waste. No, he's just observing the reality that if work is all there is for you, if, you've, if you just pour yourself into this, recognize that, that it's never going to satisfy. There is an inherent futility built into it. That's a, that's a ditch on the side of the road you need to stay out of. It's trying to find your fulfillment in work. Okay? That's an important message to men, I think. The other ditch, the, the right-hand ditch, as you will, is the foolishness of neglect. So we have the futility of labor. We now have the foolishness of neglect. 
So, for example, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Proverbs 10, 4. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. In other words, he who, who's just phoning it in. He was just phoning it in. Or chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Hand of the diligent will rule. You, you know, you want a, you want a promotion? <laughs> you, want, you want to get beyond the mailroom? Work hard. Be diligent about it. Give yourself to the task. Be dependable. I used to tell my kids when and they were growing up and, you know, we, we insisted they all work fast food for many reasons, not the least of which is so they'd have an appreciation for people who work fast food. But I remember telling them, if you are honest and hardworking, you show up on time and keep your word, you will rise above your coworkers. You will stand out. And that's a pretty low hurdle. But you will stand out. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18. Ecclesiastes 10, 18. Through indolence, the rafters sag. And through slackness, the house leaks. In other words, laziness has consequences. That's kind of the message of all three of those wisdom statements. Is that laziness has real life consequences in the here and now. I'll give you one more. Proverbs 24 and verse 7. 27. Proverbs 24 and 27. It's under the heading of the foolishness of neglect, right? That other ditch. Proverbs 24, 27. Interesting. Proverbs says, Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. Proverbs 24, 20 and 27. And written to those in an agrarian economy, you know, we don't tend our fields and things like that. But, but here's the basic gist of it. The basic gist of it is, is, to, is to develop a financial base that, that secures your standard of living before you seek to, to grow that standard of living. In other words, in that context, before you move from a tent to a house, okay, a tent is, in that culture, in that time, living in a tent is legit. Okay. So what Solomon is telling people here is, is make sure that you are, that you're giving proper attention to first things. Okay. 
They used to say, don't have champagne tastes on a beer budget. Okay. Often, people are not content to establish, you know, let me modernize, establish your career before you want the finer things in life. Hey, I want to start where my dad left off and go from there. That's my standard of living, you know, what I'm used to at home. So how do I get there? Charge. Right? So we're in a nation that is enslaved to debt. Because what does that do? Debt allows us to borrow the prosperity of the future and bring it into the present. So rather than establish my field before I build or buy my house, I want them both now. Okay? This is just another manifestation of the foolishness of neglect. Okay? So you've got these two ditches. The futility of labor. You're never going to get out of it what you would hope. But if you neglect it, or try to circumvent it. It will bring ruin. All right, where's the balance then? All right, those are the ditches. Where's the balance in all of this? In other words, how do I grab onto one without, you know, letting go of the other? How do I, how do I grab onto work and rest? Because that's our question, right? How do I balance work and rest? How do I grab a hold of one? without letting go of the other. Well, let me offer you just some, some quick principles here, okay? Give you four of them. Four quick principles to, to try to navigate the road between the ditches. And, and I get it, we're gonna go down the road like this, okay? You know, those wheels are gonna be churning up gravel left and right, but here they are. Again, we're beholding to Solomon and Ecclesiastes for all of these, actually. The first one is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and it says, Don't envy the wealthy. Do not envy the wealthy. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. This was before Pepsi AC. I mean, basically what he's saying is, is that the working man, the, the one, whether he has a lot or whether he has a little, the one who, who, who is a working man, he understands the purposes of work and so forth, he sleeps well at night. And you would think the one who doesn't have to work because, man, you know, if I only had... But what Solomon says, and, and you're talking about a guy here, Solomon's writing this, right? If anybody had, as he tells you earlier in the, in the book here, I had, I have. And he says that the wealthy suffer from insomnia. They don't sleep well. So, so disabuse yourself of the notion that if I only had, then life would be, right? Well, the famous 
question they asked uh, Rockefeller, right? Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Okay? So, don't envy the wealthy. That's the first principle. Second, work diligently. Work diligently and, and learn the secret of contentment. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. In other words, be content with what you have. Over in Philippians chapter 4, We have the words of Paul that relate to this, Philippians 4 and verses 11 and 12. Paul says, the second half of verse 11, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having both abundance and suffering need. Okay, what I just want you to take from that is his statement that I have learned and I have learned the secret. In other words, contentment is a secret. It's not widely known or understood and it requires one to learn it. We learn it in the school of Christ. Okay, so work diligently and learn the secret of contentment. Be content with where God has placed you and the circumstances in which He's placed you. Okay, again, not a license for a sluggard. Okay, not a license for a sluggard. Three, enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. So, don't envy the wealthy. Work diligently. Learn the secret of contentment. Third principle here is enjoy the fruit of your labor. For both the fruit and the ability to enjoy it is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in eight, verse 18. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So, boiling it all down, it's, it's simply this. God is the one providentially who provides the fruit to your labor. Right? One sows, one waters. Who brings the growth? God brings the growth. Okay? I mean, Paul uses that physical analogy to speak of spiritual things, but... It only, the analogy only works because that's the reality of how this world works. 
And so you work hard, but the prosperity ultimately comes from God. But not only that, Solomon observes, is that God also provides with the prosperity the ability to enjoy it. And you should. You should. Slow down. Enjoy the sunsets. Take some time to go for a walk out in the creation. Don't be so consumed with Mordor and its dark industrial, you know, landscape. Go to the Shire and enjoy it. Because God has provided to us the ability to do that and he would have us do it. Fourth and final principle is remember that life is short and serve Christ while you can. Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Behold, the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. And then Solomon goes on and very poetically describes what it's like to get old. When stuff just kind of breaks down. You know, I've kind of observed when you, um, when you get into your 50s, they start cutting parts off. And then when you get into your 60s and 70s, they start adding them back in again. <laughs> We're, the bodies are wearing out, right? We're not going to live forever here in this body, praise the Lord. So, wisdom says, remember, your life is short. Serve Christ. Serve Christ while you can. Because the days go fast. The days go fast. Maybe I'll just finish it quickly with this, just the idea of no man knows his time. So um, on the 27th of May, so just a few days ago, right? Uh, some of you saw the headline and it meant something to you, others... But anyway, um, a man by the name of Bill Buckner passed into eternity. Bill Buckner was 69 years old. 69 years old. And his wife um, gave testimony to what it appears to be a Christian faith for the man. But Bill Buckner played 22 seasons of professional baseball. Okay, not many people make it to professional baseball. And those that do, most of them get a cup of coffee and they're gone. He played 22 seasons. Played for a whole number of clubs, Dodgers, Cubs, Red Sox, Angels, Royals, over 22 years. Amassed over 2,700 base hits. But all of that could not obliterate the fact that in the 10th inning of Game 6 of the 1986 World Series, Bill Buckner made what was the equivalent of a Little League mistake and allowed a spinning ground ball to go through the wickets. And the Red Sox subsequently lost another World Series. 
And that man became so vilified, so hounded by the Boston sports press, his children so harassed in the school systems, that he ended up um, basically retiring from baseball and moving to Idaho to get away from it. <laughs> 69 years old. He's dead. All of his success summarized in one error. I mean, life, guys, is vanity and chasing after the wind. May God apply the truth exactly where you need it this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance together to fellowship around the Word, to enjoy the abundance of your creation and the food. Thank you for the hands that prepared it and the hands that set up and the hands that will clean up. Thank you, Father, that in this life, you have provided us, even in the midst of a broken world, with the ability to still enjoy what you've given us. But Father, I pray you'd help us not to let our lives, the trajectory of our lives, just end at this horizon. Help us to be in the world, Father. To be actively involved and, and living out of our humanity. But at the, at the same time, Father, holding on to that with one hand, let us grasp firmly with the other that this life's not everything. That it is the new life in Christ. And that we are here for the purpose of bringing glory to you, living out that new life in Christ. And help us, Father, to invest in people. For they go forward beyond us. We thank you, Father, for the one or ones who spoke the name of Jesus to us. And that we might believe. Amen and amen.